Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. This chapter is pretty close to being the second half of Mark's gospel. The first half focused on Jesus convincing his disciples that he was the promised king. The second half of the Gospel of Mark focuses on Jesus explaining that he is a very different kind of king. Very different from what his disciples expected. That he must be a suffering king who must die as the sacrifice for the sins of those he came to save. In other words, Jesus reveals bit by bit the only way a person can come to God, especially here in the second part of this book. And after Peter, James, and John witnessed and experienced what we call the foretaste of Jesus' eternal glory, as Jesus was transfigured for a time into his eternal body, they accompanied Jesus back down the mountain into a frustratingly chaotic scene involving the other nine disciples and their failed attempt to cast out a demon. The affected boy's father explained what was going on and then begged Jesus to heal his son. This is such an abrupt change of context from a mountaintop experience into this And we need to realize how big of a contrast that was. They had walked right into the mess of reality and evil. And in this episode, we got a vivid picture of the attitude necessary for a person to experience the presence of God in genuine worship. Did something just happen? Is this okay? The father's repentant helplessness expressed by his honest assessment of his own inability to effect any change for his son actually brought him to faith in Christ and in Jesus' ability to intervene on his behalf. The father's cry of, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief has resounded down through history as the cry of a man in the process of receiving his own foretaste of God's very presence as Jesus worked right here, right next to him, and then healed his son. The disciples then asked Jesus when they got alone with him why they had not been able to cast out this evil spirit. And Jesus let them know that they had tried in their own strength to do what could only be done in complete dependence upon the Lord, which should be evidenced by much prayer. Can you imagine these guys? They had been given authority to cast out demons way back when Jesus sent them out to do just that, along with proclaiming who he was. And they were rocking along obviously doing this in various instances and scenes, 
And then in this particular event, nothing happened. Well, Jesus used this opportunity. He got their attention. And Mark now ramps up his narrative even more. As Jesus travels through Galilee, we see in verse 30, the first part of verse 30, and then ends up, finally, not in our passage today, but very soon, heading towards Jerusalem for the final week of his life. In the last half of chapter 9, Jesus emphasis is on what must happen to him. He teaches it again, and he explains it again. And this is followed by a straightforward lesson. The two attitudes necessary for ministry and then the requirements for following him as a disciple. We we are in a very, very, very vivid, straightforward, blunt explanation to our own hearts about who our Lord is. And what was necessary for him to accomplish. Today we will mainly be focusing on the first attitude necessary for ministry in verses 30 through 37 of Mark chapter 9. And if you're able, would you please stand as I read these verses. Mark 9, 30 through 37. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. So first off here, in 30, 31, and 32, Jesus teaches the 12 disciples for the second time what is about to happen and what he must do. Now notice that Jesus is going to great lengths to keep distractions to a minimum while he's teaching the 12 again here. There is intense training going on. So he did not want the general public to know where he was. 
If the disciples were going to be able to proclaim and teach the truth about Jesus and his kingdom to other people after Jesus' resurrection, the lessons of the cross must be communicated before the fact. They obviously did not understand all this yet, as we just saw in verse 32, but they were receiving the information and the explanation that would make sense when? After the fact. When Jesus had risen from the dead after the cross. Now the first time that he made these statements and made it clear was right after Peter made his great confession that Jesus was the Christ. Just one chapter back in Mark, chapter 8, verse 31. Now, after the transfiguration and the subsequent failure of the nine other disciples concerning the boy's unclean spirit, Jesus again, for the second time, broaches this painful subject of what's about to happen. This time, though, there is some additional information in verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered into is translated in a couple of your translations as betrayed. The word literally means to be delivered up or handed over. This is important to mention because there are two completely different implied meanings depending on whether you think delivered into means betrayed or just delivered up to. Either this implies that Jesus will be betrayed by someone, we know who, Judas Iscariot, or it implies that Jesus is delivered up by who? By God himself into the hands of men. Now consider some verses here. Romans 4, verse 25 says, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or chapter 8 of Romans, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but what? Gave him up for us all. You know what? Either one of these different ways of of viewing this works, does it not? There's no conflict because both are true. So what do we do? Well, I think we ought to just keep both of them in mind because Jesus was betrayed and and so delivered over into the hands of men and that betrayer is guilty, Judas Iscariot, as are the men who put him to death. But this evil was used by God to accomplish his purpose of redemption. This was God's definite or sovereign plan from eternity past, Paul wrote. Even the evil choices and the designs of mankind cannot thwart the plans of God. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2.23, we see both of these in one sentence of his sermon. 
And I think we've always got to keep this in mind. This is not just a debate about either or. This is a debate that shouldn't be a debate because men are guilty of their evil designs. It's theirs. They own it. But God uses it to accomplish his purposes. That's how great our God is. What does Peter say in Acts 2.23? He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, that's another word for sovereign, plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See them both? They're right there. Next, we see that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will die. I almost want to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have tried to figure out what day Jesus died on on the cross, and then counted to three, and what did you come up with? Now, there's a really simple answer for this. And that is that in the Middle East, people look at days and nights different than we do in the first century. To the readers, they thought and therefore talked and wrote about a day being parts of days. If there was a part of a day when something happened, that counted as one day. So... Jesus was in the grave during what? Three day and night periods. Part of Friday, all day Saturday, and part of Sunday. Does that help? I don't know how old I was when I finally heard or read somebody explain this because it, I was, I'm a counter. I was always going, one, two, three, wait a minute. That's after Sunday morning. In verse 32, we see the the disciples' response. And I dare say if we were honest, each and every one of us would raise our hands if I asked, would you have understood this? I don't think any of us would. They didn't understand. The sad part is that they were afraid to ask him any more questions. And many of us resort to that kind of response with our God. Because we're more concerned about how we will look if we ask the question than we are about, God, help me understand this. Were they afraid to ask because they were afraid to face the suffering that Jesus said was ahead? Very possibly, yeah. They were followers of Jesus. They were identified with him as the master. His fate would be their fate. We have trouble getting this because we are so independent in our thinking in our cultural values and social, you know, the way we relate to one another, that we can't get the fact that we are identified with somebody so much that what would happen to them would be true of us if we were known as a follower. 
It's something we need to come to grips with because this is true for Christians. It always has been and it always will be. Well, another possibility, were they afraid to ask because right before when asking about the coming of Elijah, in the chapter before, they hadn't understood He explained it. Remember? But the three had just seen Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. They knew there was a prophecy about Elijah is going to come before the Lord, establish his kingdom. So they were all in. Elijah, we saw him. He's back. It's happening now. Which is what they expected but not what was going to happen right then. And then Jesus explained that Elijah was really pointing to whom? John the Baptist, who did prepare the way of the Lord's first coming. Or another good possibility is, were they afraid they were going to be rebuked like the mouth of this group, Peter? Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like man, not like God. I think it might be all three bunched into one. They just stayed quiet. When in doubt, look wise, stay quiet. Don't incur any more whatever. Stay quiet. So whatever their reason was, they didn't ask. And then... On the road to Capernaum, the disciples argued over the subject that they were really most concerned about. You ever heard this? We say it all the time. We see it in scripture that what's on a person's heart ends up coming out here. What really matters ends up coming out there. What really mattered to these guys finally came out. And what was it? Not something pretty. Not something that they should be concerned about. But it provided an opportunity for Jesus to get this across. Are you thanking God that he had an opportunity to get this across to them? Didn't make all the difference in the world right then, but it would as soon as things became clearer. In other words, this is one of those lessons that had to be learned when they didn't fully understand it. And they had to be called, called, called out in order so that they would see what was absolutely necessary for them to be used by God in the calling that God had for them. Now, does it surprise you that this great lesson that we're going to get here about the first attitude necessary for ministry is a servant's attitude Does it surprise you that what precipitated this was this argument amongst themselves about who was the greatest? That shouldn't surprise us because that's how God works in sanctifying us. And what do we do to try to keep that from happening? Is it comfortable to be called out and your heart revealed? Almost never. But do we desire that because we know that 
God is committed to making us more like himself. So in order for that to happen, what's going on in your heart, God knows about already, and he will work on that. And he knows, and this is where we mess up, he knows what is necessary for him to work on and how to do it with each one of us. What do we do? Well, let's look at it and see. Because you will see yourself in this example, most probably. So after the first time Jesus told them about his upcoming suffering and death, back in chapter 8, what happened? Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Great response. And this second reiteration that Jesus must be delivered over into the hands of men who will kill him, and then he will rise, what happened? The disciples have a huge argument about which of them is the greatest. Great response. It's not over. In the next chapter, he also explains for the third time what's going to happen to him. In chapter 10... And after the third lesson of the same subject of Jesus' death, what are we going to see happens there? You won't believe this. Do you know? James and John, the sons of thunder, that was their old moniker. Guess what God was making them into? Not sons of thunder. James and John go up to Jesus And they ask him about who would be seated next to him in his glory. They wanted to be seated next to him. One on his right side, one on his left. Don't ask me how they decided which one sat on the right, because that was more honored than sitting on the left. These are two brothers. You can picture this, can you not? Every time Jesus revealed what was getting ready to happen to him, we see a response like this. It took his resurrection, the cross, and then his resurrection for them to be totally laid low and be willing and grateful that Jesus was so patient with them. And what do you think? Do you think they could believe that he still said they were on the disciple-apostle list? Most of us would have taken off and run. I can't do this. Lived in guilt forever and ever. Jesus knew how to restore these men, and that's what we're going to see. But right now, we've got to go through this with them. Jesus knew his disciples had been arguing with one another about which of them was the greatest. And when he asked them, see what he asked them? He did not come up to him and say, I know what you guys were talking about. You guys are losers. When are you ever going to get this? I almost just want to quit. What did he say? What have you been discussing on the road? What do you... Discussing. And how did they respond? 
See that silent word again? They said nothing. My question right now to each and every one of us, is that our response? Is that my response? Is that your response when something is pointed out to you about your heart? This is an embarrassing, shameful silence. And what a chill this must have brought to Jesus' already burdened soul. They had been with him almost three years. And they were arguing about who amongst them was going to be the greatest. It doesn't take a mastermind to figure out that the leader of a group of men who were being trained would realize as they responded this way, they were still completely clueless. He knew what he was going to have to go through. He also knew how he would bring these men to understand. And he stuck with it. He stuck with his mission so he could complete his purposes in these guys. Another question. With what you know about how Jesus responded to this kind of response, to his training, his love, where would your heart be? Now, if you truly know that this is who loves you and paid the price for your sin. Are you willing to run to him or are you going to hide? Are you going to run to him or are you going to try to distract him? Are you going to be honest with him and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you going to hide? Keep it from him. Do everything you can to keep people from finding out that you did respond in this horrible way. What are you going to do? We have a Savior who you can run to. And that's what he's doing. He's changing our hearts so we are more and more willing to do that with him. And have you figured out yet that it's a process? Thank goodness. So, our Kent Hughes, who we had come for ARF uh, a year or so ago, been a pastor forever, and now he's a seminary prof. He wrote this. So, now, it was time for Jesus to teach If these men were going to continue to be his disciples and succeed in their apostolic ministry, they would have to learn the upcoming lesson and learn it well. The church that they were to found would never survive. Let that sink in a minute. Would never survive unless there was an attitude change But that attitude change came after Jesus' death and resurrection. But Jesus had to do the teaching right then.
And the church today is not immune from this same kind of attitude. You know, ministry can be viewed as a kind of lordship. Sitting in the seat of honor, being featured in gatherings, speaking to vast numbers of people, collecting honorary titles, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And sadly, the type of attitude Jesus is warning against is one that can be easily embraced by any Christian. It's the type of attitude that values being served. It's just now in the Christian context. It thinks that Christianity exists. Now, make this personal. I'm going to try by using the word me. It thinks that Christianity exists just for me to be saved. To have eternal life. To increase my physical health. To coddle my body. To enlarge my power. To elevate my privilege. To increase my control over my life. And add to this the cultural perspective that we live in. That sanctifies winning... And being number one in everything. The scriptures do call us to be our very best in all things. To work with excellence. To love with excellence. To care with excellence. But to live to be number one and desire to always be served and honored and catered to. That is not Christian at all. And the disciples were blowing it. And so are many Christians today. Now this silence that was in this house in Capernaum was finally broken by Jesus. We know he's going to teach, but I don't know too many of us that would expect this. He doesn't say hardly anything. At first, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Are you getting this? The guys hadn't explained what they were doing. Jesus knew. He asked them, What are you discussing? They were silent. So he's looking around the room and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I don't know about you, but short, sweet, they had to be absolutely amazed. And we must understand that our obedience to his teaching must not take on an American kind of rebellious, in-your-face response to all things that we deem to be undermining our own opinions and identity and self-worth and independence and value and honor. You name it, that list goes on. And we've got to realize that in our culture, that's kind of the the glorified response. Get back in your face. Do it 
to them again. Post it. It's probably the big one. Be last of all and servant of all is first and foremost an attitude out of which Christ's love flows. The power to do this, to serve all, is only found in the Holy Spirit. I hope we all understand that. This is not something you can gut up on your own. It has to be approached with an attitude of, I can't do this like you want me to. I'm going to go that direction. I'm going to try as best I can. But in trying, I've got to depend on you totally. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Here I go. So the power that's necessary is only possible through the Holy Spirit's work. And the Holy Spirit is the one who works in us what? Something called fruit. Let me just list them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if you made a list assessing what kinds of attitude you would need to serve all in the name of Christ, what would be on that list? The fruit of the Spirit. If you're honest, that's what's necessary. That's the attitudes that are necessary to serve all in the name of Christ. And that's what Christ works in each one of us. Jesus is highlighting not seeking preeminence. What's the opposite word for that? Preeminence. Humility, humbleness, or as we mentioned before, repentant helplessness. And it's the fruit of of the Spirit. You know, you read these, you study these passages, and you think, oh, this is so complicated. You know what? It's not. This is so profound, it just smacks of, well, yeah, I know that. I think that's the point. We do know that's what it says. And we think we can do it. And God shows us over and over again by letting us sometimes just do what we do in our foolishness that we don't and we can't. And what happens is hopefully we will learn to depend on him and then we give him the glory or grateful to him And his power is just unleashed in our lives for us and other people. And that's the picture. Now, Jesus gives an illustration here. But again, it's not one we expected. In verse 36 and 37, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, catch that, He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now there's something really warm and extraordinary and disarming about what Jesus does here. Do you see it? And it's emphasized even more when we realize this first. 
you got to realize this before you get the point. The language that was used in ordinary conversation in this part of the world by Jesus and everybody here was Aramaic. It's written for us in Greek. It's quoted from the Old Testament in Hebrew, but the language they were using was Aramaic. Got that? And I just saw this this week, never seen this before. The same word for child and servant is one word in Aramaic. Jesus pulled a a neat little word thing here that should get our attention. When he said child in Aramaic, it was the same word as for servant. It's used interchangeably. In other words, the disciples must receive his children, God's, and other servants and disciples with the same open arms and love with which he was holding that child in his arms. You know, some of you learn um, by seeing stuff visible, and others of you learn by doing something so you don't have to see it, so you can concentrate. So you write everything down. That's a big difference in how we learn, true? What did Jesus just do here? Both. He has a child brought to him, and he grabs the child in loving embrace and holds him as an illustration of being last of all and servant of all. There was no thought of who was better than whom here. That's the picture. But just simple, open-armed affection. Jesus said that when they did this in his name, they welcomed not only Jesus himself, but him who sent me, who is God the Father Almighty. Why and how does this work? Because God takes up residence In his people, in the person of the Holy Spirit, and together Christians make up the body of Christ, this church, a church universal. So in practical terms, when we welcome other children of God in Christ's name, there is a sense in which we receive and open ourselves up further to Christ himself. Thank goodness I'm not the only one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ, you are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. He's made us different. He's called us different. He's gifted us different. Thank the Lord for that. But when we love like this and treat people like this who are his children, we get what? Another way you can say it. Another taste of Christ through someone else. That's the picture. So we're to receive all of God's people as we do children. With no thought of their accomplishments, their influence, their fame, their gifts, but simply because they are God's children. Now this doesn't mean you walk up to somebody that you respect that spoke at T4G and you go, Hey bud, good to see you. I mean, that's not... What we're talking about here, you may be able to get 
away with that with some of those guys. They'd probably come right back at you. We know pretty much what they're like. But I think you get the point. We do this simply because another believer is also one of God's children. And this rules out seeking the powerful or the influential for what they can do for us, does it not? You know, sometimes it makes my stomach almost turn to think how many ministries have been founded solely on the idea of reaching the rich and powerful because they think that's the influence that's going to bring other people to Christ. That is so backwards. It, it doesn't mean it's not possible and you can do it, but you've got to have a special attitude to do that in where you're not sucked into that mindset. Because Christ certainly didn't do that. You like to fish, you're eligible. You're a carpenter, you're eligible. You're a despised tax collector, you're eligible. Just go down the list. What a lesson for these guys. What a lesson for these guys. By the way, This is a warning about neglecting the simple, the humble, and the ordinary. James has something to say about this. Let me just read this real quick. James chapter 2, first four verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Did James learn this lesson? Uh huh. A lot of Jameses in the New Testament, but they all ended up getting the message. Be open and accepting and not thinking about someone's status as we receive and interact with others. Being that, doing that, opens us up to Christ. And in a very real sense, we will not grow if we do not have this attitude. We're not open to growing. Because that's how he's making us grow. Do you get that? It's kind of like saying, I want to learn how to swim, but I don't want to get in the water. I don't like water. Well, you're never going to learn to swim. We have a divine mandate to love our neighbor, but especially those in the body of Christ. And we need to realize and take heed that it's possible than to reach this stone wall in our spiritual growth because we mirror the attitudes of the world around us. Our status, conscious hearts, our desires to dominate and be served. And Jesus is calling all of us to just repent of that. Be be ready because it's going to pop up often in our hearts. It won't just go away because we go, go away. It's something we learn a lot of times the hard way and we constantly have to be aware of fighting this kind of spiritual battle. 
Is it worth it? Oh, yeah. Your greatest joys will come from learning this lesson. You'll be surprised at who God uses in your life to encourage your faith. Yes, it might be the great authors. It might be the eloquent speakers who can articulate what we can only blah, blah, blah about. They can say it. They can live it. And those are great examples. But as we're learning in Sunday school, some of the times, and probably many of the times, the most ordinary ways that he makes us grow is by ordinary people. And sometimes it's like, that is the last person I would ever expect in my life to walk into my life and be used by God by God to bring me to my knees. And it happens over and over and over again. And it's a blessing. Thank God that he moves in us that way. And you know who started it? Jesus Christ, who was God the Son, and he came to earth in the body of a man. If we don't get humbleness, we don't have to look any farther than our Savior. The next time he comes back, it'll be with the sword. This time, the first time, he paid the price himself to purchase us for his Lord. We're going to take communion now. And you realize that this is not a, a meal for our physical bodies. It's a spiritual meal. And our souls are nourished by believing what we've seen today again in Scripture about who he is and why he came and it had to be him who would die for us. As we sing first, please, oh please, make these words your own.